this morning we want to look at uh, the subject of the Lord's Supper, and uh, although I'm doing kind of a topical thing on the church, this one lends itself nicely to just a single uh, passage of scripture, and so if you have a Bible and want to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read the scripture there. there, it'll be on the overhead. You should find an outline in the back of your bulletin, and there are printed and uh, messages at the exits and then online as well, and the audio uh, will be up online shortly. I'm going to read from verses 17 to 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, but in giving this instruction, I don't praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved among you may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Some manuscripts read, which is broken for you, but probably that's not original. Uh, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body Rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. He means they're dying. Uh, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. Come with me this morning to a typical American evangelical church. Uh, We're going to take a look at a few of the members, not as only as they look outwardly, but also as they look to the Lord who, as you know, sees our hearts. Oh, here comes Mary Smith, and she's smiling, she's happy, she greets various friends as she walks in. Um, Maybe you missed that icy glance she 
gave toward Linda Brown. The two are not speaking since the falling out they had a couple of months ago. Mary thinks, uh, thinks she calls herself a Christian. And as Linda sees Mary smiling to everyone, she thinks, oh, that phony, what a hypocrite. Over there's Jerry Jones. Jerry's a deacon. Uh, he's active in the men's fellowship. He teaches a fourth grade boys Sunday school class. And uh, Jerry is the kind of guy, every time the doors are open, Jerry's there. You can count on Jerry. Uh, he helped out every Saturday and a lot of midweek nights when the church was putting up the new social hall. And, uh, you know, the pastor, he calls Jerry old faithful. Uh, Jerry's the kind of guy, if you have a need, call Jerry. Kind of member that just about any pastor would really want. Or is he? If you look below the surface of all the flurry of activity, you'll realize that Jerry is battling a load of guilt. There are things in Jerry's past that nobody knows about. Not even his wife, things he did when he was in the Navy. And Jerry just thinks, if I can only do enough to serve the Lord, maybe, maybe I can forgive myself for all those terrible things I did. And besides, Jerry and his wife really honestly don't get along all that well and just makes things a little easier at home if Jerry has gone a lot serving at the church. Oh, and, and then over there is James. Uh, he's a single young man, and he's fighting a secret losing battle with pornography. He's not alone. A lot of men in the church are doing that as well. Married men and single men, it's a plague on the church. Now, I just made up these people. They're only fictional. Uh, they really probably don't exist in typical evangelical churches, do they? Well, they, they did in the church in Corinth. We sometimes idealize the early church. Oh, to go back to the New Testament church. Uh, make sure you want to have that wish fulfilled before you... Pray it, but in the church in Corinth, there were various factions that were vying for predominance. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, all of that going on. Uh, there were some members that were involved in sexual immorality. Uh, some of them had a drinking problem. And while the church should have been having an influence on that pagan city of Corinth, the truth was the pagan city of Corinth was having an influence on the church. Now, as you know, the early church did not have church buildings. They met in the homes of some of the wealthier members, homes that were large enough to accommodate them. On Sunday evening, that would be our Saturday night because their Sunday began at sundown, Saturday. So they, they met in homes and uh, would celebrate the Lord's Supper, but... Before the worship time, they would have what we would call a potluck supper where the wealthier members would bring uh, a lot of food in, and it was called the love feast, the agape. Uh, the problem was, in Corinth, some of the wealthy members would get there first and gorge themselves on all the food with no regard to the slaves and the poor who would show up later, and the food was gone, and even worse, Paul says, some of the wealthy were filling their wine glasses just a bit too much and 
getting a little tipsy even before they came to the church meeting, to the Lord's Supper. And so they were completely missing the significance of the Lord's Supper. And as a result, some of the members were even suffering severe consequences, uh, discipline from the Lord for their irreverence. So that's the background behind this section of Scripture where Paul shows us how to come to the Lord's Supper. He says, come to the Lord's Supper often with love for one another, for others, with a remembrance of the Lord. Uh, Come with examination of yourself. As you know, the Lord's Supper, along with baptism, which we looked at last week, are the two ordinances or sacraments that the Lord commanded the church to observe. Probably in the book of Acts, when it talks about the breaking of bread, it was referring to the Lord's Supper. Uh, We get our name communion for it out of 1 Corinthians 10, where in verse 16 it talks about sharing the cup of the Lord, and that word is Koinonia in Greek, uh, fellowship, communion. Um, it's called the table of the Lord in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And not in the Bible, but in church history, it's been called the Eucharist, which comes from the fact that Jesus gave thanks before he uh, gave them the bread. And that com- the Greek word for giving thanks is uh, related to Eucharist. The original Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. Um, and the Lord Jesus adapted it to the disciples and handed it off to the church after them. But the original Passover was a Jewish feast, as you know, when Israel was captive to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and the Lord instructed that they, on a certain night, slay a Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and lintel, and the Lord passed over those homes and didn't take their firstborn. Among the Egyptians and all homes that didn't have the blood, he, the angel of death, took their firstborn. And then the angel, or the Lord, delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And so uh, it was a picture for us of the fact that if the blood of Christ is applied personally to our lives, uh, we are delivered from the second death, we have eternal life, and we are delivered from slavery to sin because of the death of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. So with that as a background, Paul gives us four ways in our text that we are to come to the Lord's Supper. First of all, come to the Lord's Supper often. And uh, the, the point doesn't come directly out of these verses, but it's alluded to. And then in the book of Acts is where the point is kind of cemented. In verse 25, Paul says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. When you go back to the book of Acts, if the breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper, as it probably does, then right after Pentecost, seemingly they were celebrating it from house to house virtually every day. Later in the book of Acts, it seems like they gathered on the first day of the week, as I mentioned, Saturday night, their Sunday, um, and uh, partook of the Lord's Supper weekly. 
Some churches do it monthly in our time. Some do it weekly. Some do it monthly. Uh, some less frequently. There is no command in the Bible. We only can go on a pattern. Uh, I'll be honest. I would prefer that we did it weekly. Uh, the crunch I'm under is uh, we have two services, as you know, and we have to get them out reasonably on time for the fact that we're late on the first, the second's coming in, and all of those issues. Uh, and so we do it every other week to accommodate other things like we have frequent missionary reports. Next week we'll have a VBS report, uh, those kinds of things. If you have ideas on ways we can accommodate those things and still do it weekly, let me know. I think that would be for the better. I don't think it's commanded. Um, there's a complaint that often rises, though, if you have the Lord's Supper weekly, sometimes even if you only have it monthly, people will say, well, it just becomes an empty ritual. Uh, how do we deal with that? Well, uh, let me be honest. I hope you read your Bible every morning, and that can become an empty ritual. Yep, checked off my chapters, you know, and you don't really connect with the Lord. You just are going through the routine. Even prayer, yep, prayed for all the people on my prayer list today, but did you really come into the presence of the Lord and commune with him in prayer? Uh, singing during worship, you know, maybe your mind is off on a zillion other things and you mindlessly mumble through the songs or whatever, but it, it, you didn't think about the words and truly worship the Lord. So that can become a ritual. You know, it's not a spiritual activity. Well, maybe it is. But uh, every morning, I tell my wife I love her and kiss her goodbye. And that can become perfunctory. Yep, see you later. Bye. Bye. Out the door you go. Well, I try and make that memorable. You know, I just really want to labor to uh, have that linger with her throughout the day and let her know I'm not just saying it. I really do love you, and I want you to know it. And, yeah, it could become a ritual. So the point is, come to the Lord's Supper often, and when you do, commune with the Lord in a meaningful way. A second way, come to the Lord's Supper, is with love for others. Uh, Paul deals with that in verses 17 to 22, and then he comes back to it at the end of the chapter, uh, in the middle gives the instructions about the Lord's table. But Paul's already in this book, if you read from chapter 1 on, he's dealt with the problem of divisions in the church quite extensively. Um, he's still, at the same time, shocked by the factionalism that existed in that church as they came to the Lord's table. Back in chapter 10 and verse 17, uh, Paul wrote, he said, since there's one bread, referring to the communion bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So apparently in their house church gathering, they had a single loaf of bread that they broke and then passed around, and each person would break off a piece as they observed the Lord's Supper. But Paul's saying that one loaf pictures the fact that we're one body in Jesus Christ, and therefore should not be having these kinds of divisions. And in verse 18 and 19, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And that's kind of a puzzling verse, the second verse there, verse 19. Um, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. I'm going against almost all commentators with my views, so you're welcome to go with the majority of commentators. They understand Paul to be saying that even good works come out of a bad situation and that in the midst of the factions, the truly spiritually mature will become evident. That's a possible view. I go against them, and I'm siding here with um, the New Living Translation and the Phillips paraphrase. They both understand Paul here to be using sarcasm. And the New Living Translation runs this way. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. Or my paraphrase is, of course, you must have your factions so that your favorite leaders can be in the spotlight. But Paul in verse 17 says, better not to come together as a church than to come together with that kind of interfactional rivalry. And then... <clears throat> In verses 20 and following, Paul confronts the selfishness and the gluttony of those who are stuffing themselves and they're even getting drunk at the Lord's table, or I mean before coming to the Lord's table, they're at their uh, common supper, and they weren't considerate of the slaves, they weren't thinking about the poor who didn't have enough to eat. I think in verse 20 what he means when he says, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper I think he means that their selfish approach nullifies the very significance of the supper, which pictures for us our Savior's self-sacrifice on our behalf. And so that's what he is confronting here. Um, he says their selfish gluttony and drunkenness, in verse 22, despise the church of God and shame the poor. So he's shocked at their behavior. So Paul is saying it in a negative way, but to turn it positively, I think that we can say the point is we are to come to the Lord's Supper with genuine love for one another in the Lord. Uh, the Lord's Supper is one spiritual activity you don't do in your personal quiet time. Uh, hopefully you read the Bible and pray by yourself in private, and much of the spiritual life is private, but the Lord's Supper is a corporate event. We come together as a body of Christ to celebrate. And so to come to it rightly, you have to try to deal with damaged relationships in the best way that you can because our participation in the, the elements, um, picturing the body and blood of our Lord, should demonstrate his self-sacrificing love as he gave himself to die on our behalf. Now, I'm a realist. I realize that some relational conflicts take time to resolve. And honestly, some relational conflicts aren't going to be resolved in this world. We're in a fallen world. And I think Paul recognizes that in Romans 12:18, where he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I think, though, to the best of our ability, we should work at ironing out those difficult relationships before we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jesus was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount in a Jewish context, but he says there in Matthew 5:23 and 24, 
Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And so God wants us to work on relationships, and not, otherwise you become a religious hypocrite. Now, this applies in the church, but it, well, for example, the story I started out with, Mary and Linda, the two sisters at odds, they, they need to get together outside of church and seek to um, ask each other's forgiveness if they've wronged one another, grant forgiveness, uh, and then they can come and partake. It applies to our homes. Husbands and wives sometimes get into disagreements during the week, and Sundays are coming. And if we have the Lord's Supper, it means you need to sit down before Sunday and say, listen, I was wrong when I yelled at you or said those words to you in an angry way, and will you forgive me? And same with parents and children. You know, I know child-rearing is a tough job. I've been there. I've done that. And uh, sometimes you lose your temper. Okay, what do you do? You go to your child and humble yourself and say, I was so wrong when I yelled at you. I have asked God to forgive me. I'm asking, will you forgive me? You see, if you don't do that, and then you come and you partake of communion and you're, uh, you know, putting on the righteous front at church, your kids go, ah, yeah, that religion's worthless. It's phony. If you're real with them, then they get the picture, okay, Christians do fail, they do sin, but they deal with it. They, they really deal with it. And dad's a, a sinner, but dad is walking with the Lord. And so you've got to deal with it, and then you can come together. And to come often to the table, it, it means that we need to keep those relational matters cleared up. A third way to come to the table, come often, come with love for one another. Come to the Lord's Supper then with remembrance of the Lord, and that's in verses 23 to 26. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians before Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And so what we have here is the earliest recorded words of Jesus and the earliest recorded description of that uh, Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper there, also called the Last Supper. Uh, when Paul says, I received it from the Lord, scholars differ. Some think he means through the apostles, from the Lord, through the apostles to me, I got this. I am of the opinion he probably got it directly from the Lord during those three years he went off into Arabia after his conversion, but it's not a big point. The point is, this is not man's invention. This comes to us from the Lord. First of all, there's four things here to remember. First of all, remember the Lord himself. And maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. How can I forget the Lord? But as a pastor, let me tell you, you can even forget the Lord while you're serving the Lord. You get so busy, you know, doing all this stuff and meeting deadlines. Oh, yeah, the Lord. <laughs> and you forget the Lord. If you were to come in my office on my desk, I've got photographs of my family. And uh, if you said, are those photographs there so that you remember what your family looks like? I would say, no, that's not the point of those photographs. Those photographs are there to touch my heart. 
I look at them during the week, and I'm reminded of my family and how much I love them, and they love me. And and, uh, I think about what they mean to me and the good times we've had together. And uh, I long to be with them again and give them hugs and receive hugs and just be together as a family. And I pause and I thank God for them and I pray for protection and blessing on them. So the point of the photographs is uh, it's a heart thing. It warms my heart as I look at them and it connects me on that emotional level. And the Lord's Supper is a picture that Jesus left us. They didn't have cameras back then, but he left us a picture, a picture of his death for us. And we need to pause and look at it often because it tells us about his great love for us. Uh, It should fill our hearts with longing, saying, oh, Lord, come. We want to see you. We want you to come again. Uh, It should make us look to ourselves and say, is there anything in my heart that I would be ashamed of if the Lord came today? I I need to deal with that. And, of course, it should fill us with thanksgiving as we remember his great sacrifice that God gave us in Christ. So remember the Lord himself. And then, as I just mentioned, remember the Lord's substitutionary sacrifice for you. Jesus broke the bread. Uh, He gave thanks, and he said in verse 24, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that fulfills the, the prophecy, many prophecies, but especially the one I think of is Isaiah 53, where Jesus, led as a lamb to the slaughter, uh, willingly gave himself for our sins. And that means that as with the sacrificial lamb, our guilt was placed on him and his righteousness was placed on us. And uh, that, that guilt-ridden deacon in my opening story should, when he comes to the Lord's table, say, wait a minute, I don't have to work off my guilt. Jesus bore my guilt. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And so by faith in Christ, we can live guilt-free. As you probably know, Christians have been divided for centuries over the meaning of Jesus' words, this is my body, and I'm not going to get into all the different views. That would take a long time. But my understanding is Jesus was speaking symbolically uh, the elements picture Jesus' body and blood, which was shed for us. Uh, People ask, well, is he spiritually present in the elements in some way? Well, I would argue he is spiritually present with us when we gather in his name. He's spiritually present with us when we sing to his name, when we pray, when we look into his word in the message, and he's spiritually present with us when we partake of the elements. I want to avoid, though, some kind of a mystical, magical idea that by just partaking, you're you're somehow getting grace. As with any spiritual activity, you only get grace if you have faith in the Lord through that activity. I pointed that out with baptism last week. You can go through the ritual of baptism And it doesn't mean anything 
But if you go through baptism with faith in the Lord, yes, grace of God comes to you because you're being obedient. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. And so when you come by faith, remember Jesus suffered and died on the cross for you. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Don't ever forget that. By his wounds you were healed. Thirdly, remember your complete forgiveness through the new covenant. The old covenant sacrifices, according to Hebrews chapter 10, could never permanently take away sins. They were a temporary stopgap thing that kept looking ahead, looking ahead to the perfect sacrifice, who is Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 25 of our text, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That new covenant goes back to Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's longer than this, but the key point in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 is, God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And so we should remember that God forgets is the idea. Uh, You say, well, does God forget like I forget? You know, oops, forgot I had an appointment today. No, it's not that kind of amnesia or or senior moment or anything. What it means when it says God forgets our sin is that he doesn't bring it up against us for judgment. He deliberately sets it aside, and he can do that justly because the penalty for it was paid by our substitute, by Jesus. And so, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ... If you hear nothing else this message, hear this. Taking communion, being baptized, trying to be a good person, none of that will get you into heaven. The only thing that will get you into heaven is if you come to Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins and put your trust in him as your substitute. And you can do that in your heart right as I speak. You can do it before you leave the building this morning. And at that moment, God takes your sin and places it on Jesus and his righteousness and places it on you. And it's not by works. It's undeserved. God's undeserved favor to those who believe in Jesus. That's the most important thing you can ever do. And then finally, Paul says, remember that Jesus is coming again. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That word proclaim is used elsewhere of preaching the gospel. And so in visible form, the Lord's Supper is kind of preaching the gospel. It says uh, we aren't getting into heaven by good works, but rather we trust in what these Uh, elements represent that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in our place, and we believe in him. Uh, The Lord's Supper is a proclamation not only of Jesus' death, but of his resurrection, because he could not be coming again unless he arose from the dead. 
And thank God he did arise. He arose from the dead and he promised to come again. And, you know, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper could be the very last. The trump could sound. We hear the shout. The dead in Christ are raised first. We who are alive and remain are caught up to be with the Lord in the clouds. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And so the Lord's Supper again reminds us, be ready. Be ready. That day is coming. And then Paul closes on a sober warning. And I was thinking about making this point before the last point, kind of ending the message more on an upper. But uh, Paul doesn't do that. He ends with a warning, and so I will too. And he says this, Come to the Lord's Supper with examination of yourself. And that's verses 27 to 34. I can't go through these verses in detail due to time, but in summary, Paul says some of the Corinthians were suffering physically, getting ill, some even dying, because they were coming to the Lord's table in this relationally unloving, irreverent, self-centered manner that he has described in the earlier part of our text. Now, he clarifies, thankfully, in verse 32, the judgment he's talking about is not eternal separation from God, but it is divine discipline. God disciplines us as his children that we might share his holiness And to avoid that discipline, he gives a prerequisite in verse 28. He says, but a man, and of course it applies to a woman, must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In verse 29, when he says, by judging the body rightly, uh, that's a difficult phrase, but I understand him in the context to be referring back to verse 27, where he says, If we eat and drink unworthily, we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And so he means don't partake of communion flippantly, uh, irreverently, or even just kind of rotely, but come to it worshipfully and thankfully. By examining ourselves, I think Paul means we do a mental, private check on our heart. God isn't impressed outward with outward stuff. He looks on the heart. And so ask yourself, am I truly trusting in Jesus Christ for my salvation, not in my good works? Ask, am I sinfully at odds with anyone else, or is there any sin that I have not confessed and turned from? Uh, thankfully, the Lord's Supper is not for the sinless. That would mean we can't do it. It's for sinners who are dealing with their sin on the heart level before God, going before him and walking honestly, openly in the light before him. It's encouraging to know the setting of the first Lord's Supper. We read about it in Luke. I won't turn there now, but here's what was going on. The disciples were having an argument about which of them was the greatest. And in the middle of the time, Jesus turned to Peter and said, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. Judas, of course, uh, he may have gone out before they um, partook of the elements. We don't know the exact chronology, but he was there. Later, they go to the garden and Jesus said, please stay awake and pray with me. Watch with me. His heart was heavy and they all fell asleep. And so... 
You've got the Lord's Supper right in the middle of these very imperfect uh, men who are not, they weren't all together. They were struggling with the shortcomings and sins we all struggle with. Now, I'm not saying that we shrug off our sin or excuse it. No, Paul there in Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it's not a thing of going, oh, yeah, no big deal, you know, just blowing it off. No, we come before the Lord and say, Lord, I am sorry. I, I was wrong in my thoughts or I was wrong in my words or my actions and, and uh, deal with things before the Lord. But the Lord's Supper gives us that frequent reminder so we keep short accounts with the Lord and with one another. A century ago, maybe it was back in the 19th century, there was a prominent Scottish theologian by the name of John Duncan. And one time he was in the Church of Scotland and he was having communion or partaking of it. And when the elements came to a 16-year-old girl, she turned away and and refused them. And she just apparently was feeling guilty for her sins. And Professor Duncan reached over his arm and gently touched her shoulder, and he said, uh, Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. John Stott once very forcefully said, If the cross is not central to our thinking, it's safe to say that our faith, whatever it be, is not the Christian faith. And our creed, whatever it be, is not the Apostles' Creed. And so the Lord's Supper is here to remind us to keep the cross central. We are Christians because Jesus graciously died for us while we were yet sinners. And he offers that salvation freely to any sinner who will come to the cross and believe in Jesus. And so come often. Come with love for others, come to remember the Lord and what he did and come after examining your own heart. That's how to come to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray and then we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. As we go to prayer, let me just say if you're here this morning and you thought that becoming a Christian was a matter of piling up your good works so you'd qualify, I hope you understand that won't do. I don't care how many good works you pile up, you won't get into heaven by those works. God provided a way for sinners and sinners only to come to his, uh, into his presence, and that's through the shed blood of the perfect substitute, Jesus. And by coming in faith to Jesus... You can say in your own heart, Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I let go of the pride that would make me think my own good works would qualify me. And uh, I trust in Jesus and his shed blood for my sins. And when you come to Christ in faith that way, he gives you eternal life. He changes your heart. And then... You can do good works as a result, but not as the means. Dear Father, I pray that everyone here would be clear on the good news.
that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And I pray that we all would have our faith in him. I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, shed light into our hearts on any secret sins, any blind spots, wherever we need, Lord, to deal with it, that we would bring it before you. And thank you for the reminder in the Lord's Supper of your grace, of your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.